This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon, this is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture and I'm Juliet Jacobs. The Barham Heritage Survey is no ordinary scientific study. Instead of sending in grad students, the team from the Borneo Project hired Indigenous village-based field technicians to collect comprehensive wildlife, land use and social data for the very first time. So why Indigenous communities? Well, they know the context, the language and what every sign and sound they come across means and they have what no university can teach, intergenerational ecological knowledge. So the Borneo Project, Save Rivers and Karuan organization have now launched the Baram Heritage Survey Atlases, the culmination of more than two years of work conducted by Penan and Kenya communities in the Baram River Basin. And I'm going to find out all about it from Jetty Word. She is the director of the Borneo Project and Fiona McAlpine. She was the project manager for the Baram Heritage Survey. Welcome, ladies. How are you today? Good. Thanks for having us, Juliet. Very well. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today. So very excited to speak to the both of you. Um, and, you know, the atlases have just been launched, you know, just uh, on Tuesday. So it's really, really fresh. And first, can we talk a little bit about the Borneo Project? Uh, I know that you've been working uh, for almost 30 years with the communities who call uh, the rainforest of uh, Malaysian Borneo home. Can we start off with a quick introduction about the work that you guys do? Yeah, sure. So the Borneo Project was founded... Um, over 30 years ago now, when our founder, uh, Joe Lamb, he's uh, California-based, when he came over to be a witness to the blockades that people in the Baram Basin were putting up against logging uh, companies on their territories. And so since then, we have uh, supported Indigenous-led land rights campaigns. We're a really small organization. It's just Fiona and me at the organization. Um <laughs> And so since the early 90s, we have been supporting community-led initiatives, and we're always adapting and changing to the needs on the ground. So that has meant NCR support, land rights support, it's meant community gardening, um, as well as things like supporting local initiatives to stop the bottom dam and local initiatives to save the forest. Okay. And 30 years, I mean, that means you've, you've really sort of, you know, been there on the ground with the communities, helping them and working with them. Was it difficult to sort of gain the community's trust, you know, to sort of under, for them to understand where you're coming from and what it is your aims were? Mm -hmm. I think so. So um, I think one really important thing about the Borneo Project is that we have folks around our advisors, our board members, They've all been working in the area for almost 30 years now. Uh, so because we're a small group and we go into the communities and we spend a lot of time and we really respond to what their needs are on the ground um, and we let the priorities on the ground lead. And I think that's been a really crucial thing for helping us work within the communities. Okay, excellent. And maybe we can talk a little bit about the Upper Baram region. You know, I understand it is the largest area of unprotected and intact forest uh, left in Sarawak. Who is it home to? Um, what sort of threats, I suppose, you know, does it face, you know, being that that large intact forest that it is? Sure. So the upper bottom area, we actually work in the middle and the upper bottom area, okay. but the upper bottom especially um, has a lot of primary intact forest that hasn't been logged yet. It's the largest area of unlogged forest in Sarawak outside of a national park. Mm. 
And um, when we talk about the upper Baram forest area, that's sometimes been called the Baram Peace Park, this is a community-led initiative to protect this forest, to secure land rights, to uh, really secure indigenous-led forest management, as well as to reduce and illuminate eliminate logging in the area. Um, and there are around almost 30 communities in the area, Orangulu communities, Penan, Kenya are the primary communities, as well as Kalaba and Saban. Okay. All right. And uh, and these are all, the, and you work with all of those communities that you just mentioned? Yes, we work with all of those communities as a co- as a coalition of organizations. So it's not just the Borneo Project alone going into these areas. We're really mostly supporting local NGOs that are already working with these communities on the ground. And those organizations are also Indigenous-led. Okay, excellent. And, um, you know, I was reading, I was going through the Borneo uh, Project's website, and you've written that you've been up, you know, against some pretty bleak odds, isn't it? Um, I'm, I'm sure, I mean, I think I know what it is, but, you know, can you help elaborate what those odds are? Sure. Uh, Well, you know, there has been massive logging in the state of Sarawak for the last several decades. I was just talking to a friend of ours yesterday on the on the way back down from the communities where we were. um, And he was saying that, you know, he didn't have there weren't logging roads when he grew up. Mm. Um, The logging roads just started in the early 90s in his area. And there has been massive extraction in this area, really all around Sarawak in the last few decades. Um, You know, the logging has been some of the highest extraction in the world at times. Um, And the Malaysian-based logging companies, the Sarawak-based logging companies are really, really good at extracting. So good that they've gone to many areas around the world and they're at times um, the main logging companies in the Amazon basin, in Papua New Guinea, and Africa. Okay, and and you know the it's not just industrial logging, right? It's also plantation development, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And um, we know that a majority of all of these forests have actually licensed logging and plantation concessions, right? Um, and I think a lot of these overlap with uh, ancestral indigenous land claims as well. Is that an issue? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely an issue. Um, It's a bit of a gray zone in Sarawak because the government has acknowledged the fact that Indigenous communities do have NCR land. They have Native customary rights to their land, Mm -hmm. but they actually haven't given those rights to the communities. Um, And when the communities want to file and claim their land rights, it's a very, very long process in the courts. It can last decades. It's very expensive. Uh, So there's a lot of things preventing them from going through that process. Also, because sometimes the courts will not grant them the land rights that they claim. Sometimes they'll reduce the area to a much smaller size. So it's not even always in the interest of them to try and claim their rights in court. Um, So these areas are definitely overlapping with a lot of plantations, a lot of logging concessions. Mm -hmm. Um, And while the logging companies and plantations often claim to respect land rights, what happens in reality is a little bit more of a tricky situation because the communities claim these land rights, the government and the companies recognize them to some extent, but ultimately uh, the communities can lose control over those territories. Mm-hmm. And we've seen that happen. 
yes, all over Sarawak many times. Okay. And what are the sort of other impacts of these sorts of activities? So logging, uh, uh, you know, plantations. What has the, the impacts been on the ecosystem and also the people who call this place home, you know, who use these areas for their livelihoods? Yeah, those sorts of things. Well, some of the communities just have less food. Um, you know, the, these are communities that rely on protein from the forests. And when there are fewer trees, there are fewer animals. Uh, that being said, some of the log forest is still very important. So um, it's important to recognize that even these areas that have been logged once or maybe even twice, they have a huge potential to regrow mm -hmm. and to uh, you know recover from this logging. So they're still very important to um, protect in the future. But communities generally have, uh, you know, less access to their livelihood resources, to hunting, fishing, gathering, as the forests are deteriorating a little bit. Um, and especially when there's plantations, so not just logging, but when there's oil palm plantations in the area, they really do lose a lot of the forest and their resources. Um, and the rivers also get quite polluted as well. And so their fish um, populations, which are really a very important source of protein, start to disappear. Okay. So, so I mean, all, all around basically very negative impacts. And um, again, no access to, I suppose, legal recourse or it's a very long process. So it's, and it's very complicated. I was even reading, I think, Fiona, was an article that uh, you had written in uh, the public in Sarawak are not entitled to, let's say, copies of EIA reports, right? And that uh, makes it one of the weakest and least accountable systems of any state in Malaysia. Um, has this also, you know, been a problem for Indigenous communities when trying to, you know, find out what's going on in their, in their neighbourhood pretty much? Absolutely. We've been trying to get our hands on the environmental and social impact assessments for years for some of these concessions. And all we've been able to find are the public summaries. And these public summaries will often say these communities don't really fish anymore. They're not really reliant on hunting. They don't really need the forest resources. They bring everything from town. That might be true when you visit some of the kampong near town where the forest has already been destroyed. They do have to bring everything from town and everything's oil palm. But where you go up to the upper Barham forest area or the places where we work, you sit down and everything on the table is from the forest. Everyone has a traditional livelihood. Everyone goes hunting. Everyone goes fishing. It's a completely different kettle of fish. And I think that's where this uh, this Byram Heritage uh, project actually comes into play a little bit, right? You know, to sort of chronicle and to to sort of uh, you know, yeah, put it in paper and put it in, and quantify, you know, how uh, the local communities actually use the forest resources and what is in the forest. Let's just go for one quick break, ladies. When we come back, let's talk about that survey. I'm speaking today to Jetty Wood. She's the director of the Borneo Project, and Fiona McAlpine. She's the project manager for the Byram Heritage Survey. We're finding out all about the Borneo Project and also the Byram Heritage Survey. We'll have more after this quick break. You're listening to Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. Joining me all the way from Sarawak today are Jetty Word and Fiona McAlpine. Jetty is the director of the Borneo Project and Fiona is the project manager for the Barham Heritage Survey. Also with the Borneo Project, it's just a two-person team, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> doing everything. Yeah, but of course, you know, working in collaboration with many, uh, with the Indigenous communities and also many other CSOs and NGOs based in Sarawak. Um, so we were talking about the work that they do and also the situation affecting uh, folks living in the upper Baram region and middle Baram region as well, right, where the areas that you guys work in. So now let's talk a little bit about the Baram Heritage Project. Uh, maybe you can share what the genesis of this project was. Yeah, so um, the communities where we work have been 
eager to establish further protection measures and to really secure their land rights in the area. Um, and so we've been building community engagement tools and community empowerment tools. Uh, some of our partners on the ground, um, including Bruno Manser Fund, they're based in Switzerland, have been working with Kudawan organization, a local Penan organization and Save Rivers on mapping. For example, they've produced a series of uh, really beautiful community maps in the area. Um, and this and the Bottom Heritage Survey are a way of compiling data to really show what is happening on the ground. Uh, so the Bottom Heritage Survey is collecting data that the communities really, they already know this, you know, mm. they already know what's in the forest. They already know that they rely on the forest. But having this information in hand can be used to verify uh, the reports that are made about them, you know, the social impact surveys, the ecological surveys. Um, and it's also a tool that they can use to advocate for future indigenous-led forest management in the area. Mm -hmm. Okay. And and Fiona, maybe you want to, to talk to me about how it was designed, how it was curated, you know, who were the various groups involved uh, in making this a, a reality? Yeah. Yeah, we worked with three clusters of communities to start with, um, one in the middle of Barham and two in the upper Barham. Altogether, six different communities decided to join. Um, and we worked with uh, field technicians from each of those communities who would walk four-kilometre transects, so transect mm -hmm. uh, forest paths for anyone not down with the lingo, um, twice a month, once looking for animal signs uh, and once looking for animal sightings. And they did that for nine months over the space of two years, so nine full months of data Crazy, over yeah. the space of two years. And they also interviewed um, people back in the community, everyone over the age of 18 who was willing to be surveyed and collected lots and lots of social information about nutrition and livelihoods, hunting and fishing, and all about the way of life. And it was the it's the largest of its kind, yeah. isn't it? And, and and I was reading the first to describe the diversity of species uh, specific to the study area, isn't it? Um, so nine months um, over two years, and I'm, I'm guessing this was during the pandemic, so it must have been really That's quite. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that must have been an added challenge right there, right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, Fee was originally planning on coming every you know six to eight weeks as part of the management of the survey, mm. but we haven't been here for two and a half years. <laughs> so. <laughs> Um, one thing that I'm really grateful for and very proud of is how the technicians were able to continue working through the pandemic and they did an amazing job. Mm -hmm. and, and talk to me a little bit about the technicians, you know, how were they selected? Uh, you know, how did you train them? You know, what sort of training did they undergo? Those sorts of things. Sure. Well, you know, they really brought a lot of the training themselves. Um, we worked with and we hired and trained 12 technicians from the community. Um, and what's really important is that we are using folks that are already there, that already have the expertise. We're not sending in grad students or other researchers. We're really building community capacity um, instead of sending outsiders in. And these were all hunters, basically, you know, they're, they're hunters, they are experts in the wildlife in their areas. Um, and we just train them on, you know, how to use the app, how to input data into the app and a few other tools that they needed. And they cleared all of the transect paths in the forest. There were 12 transects altogether, each four kilometers. So that was a lot of work, especially in this very hilly mountainous terrain. Yeah. Um, and they 
so it was them who was looking for these animal sightings and the animal signs. And they were, I mean, they kind of blew our minds. They were <laughs> so good at tracking these animals. You know, they could see a, a footprint in the mud and know exactly who left it and how long ago, or they could see eaten fruit and they, they could have a really good idea of who ate that fruit. Um, yeah. and- we, were, we were just reminiscing this morning about how much they trained us really yeah. <laughs> when, when we were designing the app and we went up and consulted with them about which animal should be in there. And I mean, we sat down with the technicians over some rice wine and they went through all the different sounds of the different six species of hornbills that live in the upper barham and they could all do all of them. Mm-hmm. And we said, okay, we have to add a section to the app that is just sounds for the hornbills and then for the gibbons as well. And yeah, so many of the ways that you could track a babui were missing from the app. So each month they would come back and say, oh, you don't have the mud bath or you don't have the scratching or you don't have this. And we would add more things in. So really, really, their knowledge was crucial. And and of course, they were collecting all of this and all of this data is available and, and you know, ready to use in that sense, right? Yeah, exactly. So they collected a huge amount of information um, that we are looking at and that we've compiled into these atlases, um, as well as we're working with some researchers at Unimas, as well as some universities in the U.S. who are taking a, a you know deeper dive into the data as far as measuring the density of the animal populations and a lot of other um, really important elements that are looking at how healthy the ecosystems are. Um, and so the the data, though, really belongs to the communities. Mm-hmm. And so we have consent from all the communities to share these stories. Um, but we're actually keeping the data among the researchers. Okay. Um, and uh, we're not sharing any maps publicly because um, <laughs> because uh, we did find such an abundance of wildlife and really important endangered species. And we want to make sure that we're not giving easy access to people who might want to go there of course, um, and poach these animals, um, which they, these communities have experienced before. Okay. Yes, totally understandable. And and talk to me a little bit about, you know, the different species, uh, you know, that was found or that, you know, uh, have been chronicled. We're not going to mention areas, of course, but, you know, anything that surprised <laughs> you in that sense, you know, like, oh, wow, I didn't know this, this species was here, that kind of thing. Yeah, we were looking for 120 different bird species, 67 different mammal species and 24 reptile and amphibian species. That's what ended up being in the app um, after we narrowed it down a lot because we asked the communities to only include species that are either really important for protein or really important culturally. And we ended up with, you know, almost 200 (laughs) because all these animals are really important. Um, But we found... 39 different rare, threatened and endangered species that are really, really important um, internationally for conservation and for the forest ecosystem to survive. Um, So we have three critically endangered species, nine endangered and 27 vulnerable species that we found that are all on the IUCN red list. So it's really significant internationally that these were found in this area and that this area is protected for that reason. Um, some of the ones that are easy to talk about are pangolin and sun bear and clouded leopard and all these species that we weren't sure if we would find them. They're, they're there mm. and they're healthy and they're, mm. yeah, thriving. Yeah. yeah. And, and again, yeah, we, in, mm-hmm, sorry. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say there, 
you know, we're working with one community that has experienced much more logging than the other two areas where we worked. Um, and even though they've experienced logging, they do have significant animal populations and they do, there is a difference, you know, that, that, that forest has been impacted. There are certain species that are only found in the areas that have more forest cover, but these areas that do have, that have experienced more logging still have an incredible abundance, um, of what's on the ground. Mm-hmm. And sorry, I was just going to say that, you know, these, these, again, just to remind listeners that these are not protected areas, right? That's correct. Although the communities have had uh, rules in place for a long time uh-huh. that are, you know, it's indigenous led forest management. So they have, we're looking at two different areas where they already have their own community conservation areas, community forest areas that are just cultural area. You know, they, since they've been in the area, these communities have treated these areas as protected forest. Um, and one of them actually doesn't allow any hunting at all in this area of forest. And that that transect, the transect that we had in this area that does not allow any hunting had the highest species diversity out of all of the transects. Okay. Okay. And so now that you've gathered all of this data and all of this analysis, um, I mean, how are you going to use it exactly? You know, how are your partner NGOs going to use it? How are the communities going to use it? I guess, you know, what is the aim of all of this? We're advocating for building and strengthening Indigenous-led forest protection. This data shows that communities have been protecting this area for a very long time. They're the experts when it comes to forest protection. Um, So we are advocating among our NGO partners, among researchers, um, and among, you know, the the folks that are in the the communities themselves to really push for further forest, uh, further Indigenous management of forests. Okay. Okay. And so, so the Baram Heritage Survey Atlas, so that's been released now, right? I mean, will researchers, other researchers have access to it? I mean, how does that work exactly? Yeah, we're working with a few different researchers at UNIMAS and other American universities. Um, so we do have the data available to um, a select number of researchers that are looking at very specific things. Um, you know, animal density, animal populations. There are a few that might look into species-specific numbers. Um, you know, gibbons, pangolins. Um, so we're we're still in the process of using the data and. Um, we have such an abundance of data that we can still do a lot with it. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. And of course, you know, as you said, you know, this data, uh, this data can be used by the communities to sort of disprove things that are said about them or how they actually use uh, forest resources and things like that, right? So what's been said in EIA reports, for example, which they were not consulted on, those sorts of things as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So um, some of the areas, some of the communities where we work have been fighting logging concessions that are on their land. Yeah. And as Fee mentioned, these logging, uh, the the assessments that they do in the process, the social impact surveys, the environmental, the ecological impact surveys, they really downplay uh, the community reliance on the forest. And so we can use this data to uh, verify if their information is accurate, as well as with high conservation value reports. So high conservation value reports are another way of assessing 
um, the land and logging companies and oil palm companies, I believe, are generally required to produce some of those. And we can see from this data that there are a lot of high conservation values in the area. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, you know, just looking at, I mean, so now two, two and a half years, but yes, it's a, it's a long project, um, but now it's come to an end, I suppose, in this, in, the, in a sense, right? Is it something that can be replicated? Is this something that you're also going to advocate for, uh, for it to be used in other areas with other uh, communities? This is definitely something that can be replicated. It was a huge project and quite expensive. So it's not an easy thing to replicate, but we're already better equipped. You know, we have the app already made. Um, What we could do is just do the, the hunting and fishing surveys and the social interviews. That part is actually relatively easy to establish. Um, And it doesn't take as much time. It doesn't take as much money. Um, And we are, potentially going to use those as tools in other communities. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, this is this is definitely replicable. And one interesting way it might be used is to evaluate the impacts on um, swine flu on the populations. Yeah. So babui, the um, you know the the bearded pig Thank is you. a really, really important animal culturally as well as for protein to all of these communities. It's the main animal that they want to go hunt. And that the population has basically been decimated with swine flu all around Borneo right now. Um, I believe it hit Sabah first on the island of Borneo. So we could uh, replicate this project or elements of this project in a few years to evaluate the impact of swine flu on these populations. Mm -hmm. Because that will have a trickle-down effect on on the ecosystem, isn't it? Because it's also uh, a prey for, for many and I mean for some predators there, isn't it as well? I think they're a little too big for most of the predators in the area, Um, but it could have an impact as far as hunting goes. If folks aren't getting the protein that they need from uh, the babui, from the bearded pig, they there could be more pressure on the other animals in right, the area. Right, right. Okay. And and bearded pig is a relatively um, more sustainable way of hunting, or it was before, because they have many. Uh, they have a litter of many pigs at a time. I see. Okay. Okay. All right. So wonderful that this atlas has uh, come out. And um, I, I just wanted to ask something about the uh, heritage park. No, what is it called again? The peace the park. Board- the, ba- uh, the, the bottom peace park. Sorry, yes. It's also known as the upper bottom forest area. Okay. And, and and how does, I mean, what is that exactly? Yeah. Sure. So it was actually an idea that started in um, the, around 2008, 2009. Many Penang communities submitted a proposal to protect this, the areas of forests where they live um, and to, you know, preserve their way of life and to secure land rights and their livelihoods. And it's since grown into a larger project to incorporate the different groups in the area. Um, And it's a very exciting project. The Sarawak Forest Department has submitted um, a proposal for the project to the International Tropical Timber Organization that has approved the project. And we've now found uh, much of the funding for the project to move forward. So this is really... Um, a large project that's incorporating indigenous-led forest protection. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a new model of sorts for Sarawak. And um, we're just, it's just starting to get going and we're still in the process of developing what that really looks like. Um, But the Bottom Heritage Survey is part of the process of of ensuring that it's really indigenous voices that are incorporated into the management uh, of this project. 
Okay. All right. Well, uh, it sounds amazing. Uh, you know, and congratulations on you know on, on I suppose this uh, this achievement is wonderful. Congratulations. Um, what would you like our listeners to know? I mean, is there anything that they can do to assist? You know, I mean, uh, what what help will be most useful to the Borneo Project and also to the Baram Heritage Survey? For folks in Malaysia, I think that a really important element is just awareness in general. So knowing that these places exist, that they are full of life, that these communities are doing such an important job of protecting these forests um, and spreading the word is already such an important thing to do because it seems sometimes like the Baram is so far, yeah. uh, so remote, no one knows anything about it, but it's actually a really large area and it's in, it's full of an incredible abundance. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and how about for you, Fee? I mean, what do you want people to know? I mean, being the project manager of, of, the, of the Heritage Survey for two years, um, what do you want folks to know or to understand about, you know, everything, all that data that you've gathered? I think it'll be exciting when we have the next steps. So we've made these atlases, as you said, that are community facing, but we're going to work more on what can be outward facing and can be used um, as an awareness raising tool, as Jetty said. So we'll work at, with the communities to work out what they're happy sharing mm-hmm. and then we'll put some stuff online and um, we'll be pushing all that out. And the other thing I, I think with our partners, Save Rivers and everything, um, there's a, a real threat and it's a current threat. And the Stop the Chop campaign is something that people can get behind to help support these communities try and eliminate logging on their land. So just look for the hashtag Stop the Chop or look at saverivers.org and and go from there. Okay. All right. Excellent. Thank you so much, uh, both of you, for joining me today. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much uh, for joining me today. I've been speaking to Jetty Word and Fiona McAlpine. They are uh, Jetty is the director of the Borneo Project. Fiona is the project manager for the Barham Heritage Survey, also with the Borneo Project. If you'd like to find out more, just head to borneoproject.org. All the information is there. Or you can head to Safe Rivers as well. Uh, A lot of information there as well. If you miss any part of our conversation today, you can always download the podcast at bfm.mice slash earth or you can find it on the bfm app this has been earth matters on the bigger picture bfm 89.9 you have been listening to a podcast from bfm 89.9 the business station for more stories of the same kind download the bfm app